Welcome to the Sports Business Commute here on the program. I'm Michael Mankus, joined as always by Professors Christopher Lee and Daniel McIntosh from the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Uh, gentlemen, Chris Lee had a tweet today, and by today I mean I guess it's uh, April 5th or whatever. It's it's the first week of April, and at Chris Lee PhD tweeted something today about public transportation. We want to talk a little bit about Shocker. that. Shocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. public transportation. transportation. Wow. Next, you'll be telling us you'll be talking about carless revolution. <laughs> Did you eat Chipotle today? Maybe I, we're going to learn about venues. And we, <laughs> also, what happened to not revealing the date of the yeah. episode? I thought that was supposed to be like a... Anyways, so I was driving to work, and uh, the light rail went in front of me at the intersection. Can I interject something? <laughs> started. I think it's great that you talk about trying to be cleaner. What do you drive? Truck. A gigantic. A small truck. (laughs) Smaller truck. I downsized from my previous car. What was your previous car? I've seen your current car. What was your previous uh, car? I drove a Toyota Tundra Crew Max. Right. So you're literally in your ivory tower telling us that we should take better care of the earth as you. This one gets a lot better gas mileage (laughs) than most SUVs. Anyway, I'm sorry. I I also went two years without a car, so I think I... Like oh, you, you, <laughs> you've, you've earned this pollution. Yeah. <laughs> you saved your I pollution. Kid. Going carless was awesome. I'd totally do it again. Okay. Uh, Sorry, anyways, we digress. So, um, light rail's going across. There's two cars on it, like two rail cars, whatever you want to call them. So, in terms of, like, social proof psychology, I was wondering what happens or what would happen if there was, like, let's just say eight rail cars instead of two. So, I'm sitting there and, like, oh, I'll there's probably you, a lot of people. No, I'll tell car. you what happens. I would be angry four times as long <laughs> as waiting <laughs> these cars to go past. That's what would happen. That's fair. But, I mean, so ignoring the, the logistical challenges of having of course. Yeah, eight car logistics. subway. Uh-huh. Logistics are important, by the way. But you don't think those. you don't think if you were sitting there, uh, there, if you were sitting there at the stoplight and there was eight cars of rail going by that you wouldn't think it was more popular than if there were two. But and you're arguing because you can't see inside. Yeah, they're, the ones here are all like wrapped with all kinds of advertising. Okay, so let me, I guess I phrase it this way: If I came with an entourage to work, would I feel more important? Probably, yeah. Right? People would look at me and they'd be like, "Yeah, look at that guy. Sure, he's got an entourage." So, so I think so, you're right. Yeah. So I mean, I think from like a rather than marketing the light rail, what if you just added more cars and then people see Hold it on. and think there's, it's more popular? <laughs> whoa, 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 So let's take money away from marketing and let's buy empty cars. That's your solution. Question: Are, we, are people going to be allowed to sit on those cars? Oh, no. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding Ethically, I think they should be able to because that way there's actually people on those cars. But in theory, you could just, like, load six other cars onto the the wagon, so to speak, and (laughs) not let people on them. But (laughs) I'm going to look into the study because I think – I honestly think that people would think it was busier. They would be more inclined to ride the light rail if there were more cars. I will say this, you know, uh, think about like whenever you're you're driving down the road and you see like a giant Hummer limousine drive by, the the presumption everything good there? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the presumption I think whenever you see a Hummer limousine drive, even if it's like the middle of the day, is that there are people in it, right? <laughs> right. Compare that to like, you know, seeing like a Nissan Sentra yeah. or whatever drive down the road. The presumption isn't that it's full of people. Well, I, I kind of understand the thought process here, although, yeah, the logistics are really... The other thing that's kind of interesting, right, when they have that tinted black window, am I the only one that tries to look in? <laughs> like, I will stare, like, peering in to be to see if something, because like, I sure. can't see. Right. So maybe to your point, there would 
it would have some benefits. Yeah, it's no different than if you were like walking down the street and one restaurant had some people standing outside versus one another one had zero people. It gives you a sense that people well, are interested. Well, the more famous one I remember is the street musicians, yeah. where they will put money in the hat so it looks yeah, like right. others have exactly. already given, yep. so then they'll give. Yeah. So I, I, I will say, I think that restaurant example compared to the light rail example, that's not the best example. And here's why. You said that there would be people standing out for, outside one restaurant and nobody standing outside the other. Uh-huh. I think the better example would be one restaurant is very small while the other is very big. And then the presumption would be that the big restaurant has a lot of people. And I'm, not, I'm not sure. That's too. Okay, that's fair. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. But I, I think that's more comparable to the we're going to stick eight, eight rail fair. cars on the, uh, on the tracks at once. Right. So if you took somebody into an empty place and it was really small, and then you took somebody into an empty place that was really big and asked them, how popular do you think this place is? Right. Would just how big the place that's the concept. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I like it. Michael was the winner. Whoa. Man, it, it, only, it only took us to, what, the third to last episode of this of this podcast <laughs> so, for so me wait, to come is, up with a good idea. Is this the try um, ultimate? No, no, but next one's the penultimate. Okay. okay. Yeah, just giving y'all a fair warning. I'm graduating soon. I'm moving. These two are going to stay in Arizona, I assume. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll like, you know, just do, like, a finger puppet show. Chris might be going podcast. to China again. Really? Yeah. yeah. But not to live there. Not to teach well, for two weeks. We'll see. Meh. Meh. What's Anyways, meh? I can see him staying. What does this have to he do with like? The, he loves the culture. And then here I was just trying to make a joke about you two doing like a finger puppet show about sports business <laughs> because you wouldn't have somebody to do audio engineering for we you. We will both see. be here whether the podcast is or not. Is Will you have finger puppets? 2BD. All right, let's uh, let's go on with the show here. All right, so today we wanted to talk a little bit about a recent Sports Business Journal article detailing the consumption patterns of Generation Z in in the context of the sports business industry. And Generation Z, Gen Z as we'll refer to them, has a very, uh, I won't say distinct advantage, but are a very powerful force in the American sports business ecosystem uh, as of late. Uh, I believe it's this coming year they'll make up 40% of all consumers. They already spend $140 billion a year as consumers. So, I mean, this is a large block of the population that is just gaining spending power. And I think sports business uh, teams, uh, leagues, I think they're really trying to capture that enormous audience. No, I agree 100%. And I always, you know, frankly, I I got the terms millennial and and Gen Z confused. So uh, according to the article, the easy way to tell which one you belong into is if you remember September 11th when it happened. So not just the event, like we all remember 1776 because we took history. Mm-hmm. We're meaning like you remember watching it unfold. And so if you don't uh, and you're you're younger than that, you're in the Gen Z. If you do, you'd be in the millennial category or, or some of the other ones. So I was shocked that about 80% of my class uh, at the undergraduate level is now Gen Z. So we are, this is this is the generation that we are raising in our classrooms. Interesting. I, I also think it's somewhat interesting to segment by generation. I mean, that's still an enormous range of ages where technology has drastically uh-huh. changed. Uh, not to get too far off topic, but I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old niece, and one of, there's dr- big differences in how they engage with technology. So the six-year-old grew up in a uh, touch, you touch screens, you touch the TV, et cetera. That's her first instinct. The three-year-old now grew up in a voice world. Huh. Where you yell at things, you yell at the TV, yell at Siri. <laughs> but I mean, in this kind of voice activated world, and that was only three years and you can see their sort of default behaviors are different. Oh, that reminds me. I've always wanted to do this, this joke on this podcast and really, you know, screw with people. Alexa, play Africa by Toto. 
<laughs> I've always wanted to do that. I, yeah. I, 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 you know, I figured, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this this podcast set has a limited audience, but somebody nope. somebody will now be listening to the sweet serenades of Toto. But, but I can't believe they put the Weezer version on. You said the Toto version, and it gave us the Weezer version. That's uh, unfortunate. No, <laughs> <laughs> no that, that's the crazy thing. And just go off topic once more, but it's cra- kind of crazy seeing how Weezer's resurgence was based off of an 80s power ballad. Mm-hmm. That's kind of wild, isn't it? Way to go. Good, good for Rivers Cuomo. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of Gen Z, uh, they they know who Weezer is because of an '80s power ballad. How wild is that? That's crazy. I, and that and that just kind of goes to show the segue. That just goes to show kind of the power of cultural trends in Gen Z's consumption habits. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that with their reliance on social media. And Professor McIntosh, you mentioned this a little bit in our our pre episode discussion. Yeah. Well, so, for example, we talk about where they get their news, and Twitter and Instagram are their dominant news sources, and that has a lot of potential consequences as we talk about the media landscape and the revenues that are generated from that. If we want to go into the the vetting of news and how quickly uh, fake news can spread. I remember uh, I was watching an ASU football game, and there was a bad call, and one of the reporters that I follow on Twitter made a sarcastic tweet that said, I can't believe they allow a U of A graduate to ref ASU games. And he was joking, but it, it had no appearance. And I like I retweeted, like, this is outrageous. <laughs> like, I bought it hook, line, and sticker. But, like, that's the world we're in, right? Sure. It's just a, it's a fundamental different dynamic for how they uh, engage and, and receive information. Yeah, and the article talked about they view, I mean, even what we define as social media is different to a certain extent. Like, maybe our generation views YouTube as social media, and it talks about how Gen Z, it's more of like a utility. I did. With the top eight. Yeah. Nice. That was a little throwback. I know. Most of the listeners don't even know what MySpace is. Exactly. Friendster, the ripoff of uh, mm-hmm. MySpace and, and Facebook. Yeah. Good times. Thank Good you. memories. Thanks. Um, Did you guys like listen to, you know, your sync on LimeWire too or? Uh... Uh, I was not a LimeWire guy. I was a Napster guy. Ah. And then I was a Kazaa guy. Ah. <laughs> How about you? I don't remember all the ones that we used, but whatever was being used as <laughs> That's I, dabbled. I dabbled. I think we really just kind of showed the fundamental difference between Professor McIntosh and Dr. Chris Lee. But it, I mean, it does, <laughs> it does go to this idea that we labeled social media as this kind of overarching thing, but there we've seen evolution in social media and going to MySpace, Facebook, and now Facebook is outdated to many of the students in my class when we talk about, you know, advertising. And so Instagram, like you mentioned, is one of the predominant. Well, I guess what I was kind of thinking of is, does social media ever become just media? Yes. To where it, it is the dominant player, right? And so now we don't call it social media. We call it media. And what we used to call media now is the print media or sure. this some sort of like outdated mode of right. like of like using a, uh, a film camera. Right. <laughs> like you still read the Wall Street <laughs> Journal in print? Like what are you? Yeah, it goes to kind of the default and jumping into linguistics. I mean, even things like organic food, right? At one point, food was just organic. You didn't have <laughs> right. to, to label it. Right. But same. I mean, and so when I talk about social media, a lot of times I say it's just media or even marketing, right? Is it digital marketing? Is it database marketing? Those are inherently should be part of marketing. But in terms of how we use it, I mean, we have the ability to consume whatever we want, produce through Instagram. I mean, this is media in, for Gen Z. 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, all the different modes of media. We mentioned on our esports episode that now Fortnite is one of the predominant social networks or social media sources for people in Gen Z, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they are constantly looking for new ways to consume content. I say this as if, like, I'm 20 years older than them. I'm, like, a year older than most Gen Zs. I, I remember 9-11. Like, only barely, but I remember 9-11. So, you know, I'm very much on the cusp. Well, another but, thing that I found kind of interesting, sorry, uh, is when they talk about one of the reasons they like uh, uh, using these emerging medias is their parents aren't on there. Right, uh-huh. and so as these things become more popular, then you want to get away from it. Sure. I, I think the best way to phrase this is that part of the reason that Facebook is now so uncool to use among the youth is because their moms and dads have been using it for ten years now. It's true. Like, why would you want to be on Facebook talking to all your friends when your mom and dad are tagging you in posts like, you know, oh, I just remember when little Jimmy was five years old and he had spaghetti all over his face. It's like, that's not cool. And he tags you. And And they tag you. (laughs) The worst is when they tag you in childhood photos of you. Ugh. So uh, one of my favorite bands from when I was a youth was Five Iron Frenzy. And they had a song called Handbook for a Sellout. And the concept was as soon as something became popular, you had to immediately cut ties. Sir. <laughs> what, what was that band called? Five Iron Frenzy. Was it like a golf, like golf? themed band? It, like was, a golf? it was not. It was a ska punk band. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But I mean, I, do, I, I don't think that's inherently unique to Gen Z, right? I mean, no. anytime something becomes popular, the younger generation abandons it or wants to be different than the older generation. I mean, it's part of the reason why rock and roll became significantly less cool throughout the 80s. It's because the kids that were growing up in the 80s, their parents had been listening to The Who and The Beatles and, you know, Led Zeppelin for 15 years by that point. And they said, ugh, yeah, gross. Right. And this just came to me. What's after Gen Z? Do we go back to Gen A? Who names these? How are these? Yeah, how did they become How are these decided? Gen X. Why did we go to write X? Why did we not start at like Gen B? <laughs> did somebody do the math all the way back to yeah. Adam? How like, do we label these? Huh. Huh. I don't know. But no, it, it, wow. We're really doing some hard-hitting commentary here. With all this in mind, with all these differences in consumption habits in mind with Gen Z, we want to talk a little bit about how that applies to the world of sports business, 14 minutes into this episode of the Sports Business Commute. Sure. So when we talk about Gen Z, obviously, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, leagues are really looking to capture that audience, and they're looking into somewhat unique ways to do so. Well, uh, well, you're exactly right. I, I love the stat they listed where the NBA is, is by route – considered the best at connecting with this generation. Mm -hmm. And I I was talking to my students. I go, do you remember the article from even, I think it was six weeks ago, about the MLB and what they started to allow their players to do? And they go, oh, that's right. The MLB just let their players use highlights in their social media. And I go, how long has the NBA letting them been letting them do that? And they like, I can't remember a time when they haven't. Right. And I'm like, no wonder. I think it's 7% agree that the Major League Baseball is doing an effective job reaching Gen Z. Like, it's just we have to allow these things to develop in, in our our concepts of IP, our, our trying to monetize these things, makes it difficult to develop those fans. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, a difficult line to balance. I mean, at what point do you give up kind of all of your intellectual property or it ends up on websites you don't want it to or, you know. People are watching games through various streaming methods that the league doesn't operate or control. But they're already doing that in right. leagues other than the NBA. Sure. You can, you can sure. I can find a stream of the Masters online, and I don't think sure. anybody would mistake the Masters for being this sort of, uh, oh, youth-friendly, uh, hip, young brand, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think the ethics of Gen Z is really interesting because when I talk to students, and I, I'm as a, a late millennial, I'm the same way, 
I don't have the same qualms that some of the older folks do about illegal streams. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll go to Reddit and I'll be like, oh, here's a stream and I'll watch it. And, and, and I've asked my students, how many of you have shared a Netflix password or access? And, like, everyone's hand goes up. Right. But at the same time, they're they're uniquely socially conscious and want to go towards uh, 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 causes that they find deeply uh, mm-hmm. I- impactful and socially beneficial. So I think that's part of the reason why the NBA has really succeeded in a lot of ways because it's leaned into a lot of the social issues that one could say really affects society today. Like you remember the Eric Garner case in New York City where the uh, the unarmed man was was choked out and killed by police after selling loose cigarettes. You know, NBA players came out with shirts saying, I can't breathe. You know, in the NFL, a player kneeling during the national anthem effectively got him blackballed from the league. You look at the NBA, the NBA leaned into this. Adam Silver leaned into this and said, this is what is important to our players. And we think it's also important to our fans. And I think that level of consciousness, I think that's what makes the NBA so, so uh, successful with younger people. I would even argue that they did a better job of just shaping the narrative, right? And so when you have positive relationships with the media and, and you go out and you kind of set that tone, you know, quite frankly, I'm lazy. And if I see a, a headline that says one thing, I go, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. Adam Silver, you know, makes a socially positive impact. I go, wow, NBA is doing some cool stuff. Versus look at how the message was kind of portrayed for the NFL. They did an awful job of going through and, and kind of telling their side of the story or, or trying to really get a temperature of where this was going. And I think it really shows in the consumption patterns of Gen Z in regards to those leagues. Gen Z's watch NBA. NBA is by far their favorite league. Uh, they enjoy the MLS as well. The MLS is booming in popularity. They love esports. What are leagues that Gen Z doesn't find as appealing? Well, MLB for one. NFL. NFL especially, it's really shocking how poorly the NFL performs among Gen Zs. Well, especially, like I said, with some of their things with social recognition, like their entire uh, kind of youth, they've been told about concussions and the lawsuits. And there's just been a lot of negative publicity around the NFL for their their life cycles. Yeah, this article had done surveys on uh, a variety of different kind of questions, but one of them, a lot of them were surrounding experiences and kind of overwhelmingly millennials, at least, you know, based on their survey responses, favor experiences over actual products. So 96% will pay more for a brand that provides them a positive experience. Now, granted, maybe everybody says yes to that. Right. But I think there is a trend of they want more of an experience than just let's say, watching the game in, in a sports context. Well, the other the thing they, they talk about is these Instagrammable moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they want, you know, for lack of a better word, to social brag. They want to be able to talk about what they've done sure. and share that with others to a degree that it, 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 our, our parents didn't have that same thing. I saw a really interesting quote. It was something along the lines of, like, this generation cares more about what their friends think than what their parents think. And I was like, wow, that's a that's a kind of powerful shift in, in some of these dynamics in terms of their consumptions, their influencers, how these things like I was talking with another friend and I was like, I can't believe an influencer even exists. I was like, let's let's pretend Michael is an influencer. And if he says, uh, yeah, uh, eat barbecue ribs, I'm not gonna be like, no, OK, sure. But he's like my he was like my girlfriend. Anything that Kylie Jenner recommends, she must go buy. And I, I just don't understand. Like, I don't understand how that works. Yeah, they don't want to be, as the article kind of alludes to, they don't want to be marketed to, they want to be the marketers themselves. So you think about these Instagrammable moments, um, and increasingly you're seeing at sporting events, concerts, etc. Like, you know, I was just at Garth Brooks, I was at Final Four a couple years ago, and you see lines of people, like, and not just young people, but lined up to get a photo in front of the little Garth Brooks statue or the NCAA 
tournament logo uh, for the ability to share that and become kind of the marketer yourself. I think what's really interesting is that that isn't just something that I think sports teams are looking for. I mean, I'll take myself as an example, right? Whenever I post on Instagram, I very rarely post photos of myself on Instagram, Uh, partially because I'm extremely non-photogenic, right? But partially because I just... The things that I find interesting in life, like I, I post pictures of the beer that I'm drinking sure. or the food that I'm eating or whatever. I'm, I'm that Instagram right. person, right? But again, what I'm, what I'm essentially doing is not only am I sharing my experiences, but also and I think brands are really picking up on this. Sure. I am offering those brands the freest of advertising. You know, like when I when I post a photo of me drinking a Stone Tangerine Express IPA on my Instagram, Stone has immediately gotten free advertising out of me and I was willing to give it to them. And I think you see that among a lot of Gen Z people when they talk about the brands that they're interacting with. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you two teach Gen Zs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and you, you two interact with Gen Zs on a daily basis in an academic context. You know, when you look at their patterns of consumption, what are you really seeing as it pertains to sports? Well, well outside of just what it pertains to sports, what it pertains to teaching is this concept of pedagogy. And so how do we come through and really connect in the buzzword du jour with everything you hear in, in academia is how do we be more engaging? Mm-hmm. Um, getting up and, and clicking through a PowerPoint is just not going to cut it with this generation. It doesn't. And you can see them like or, or frankly, you can hear them typing to their friends. Right. They'll, they'll sure. claim they're taking notes, but we know they're sure. on Facebook and we, we know what they're doing, because if you're just up there and going to click through, they say, I can do this on my own time and they tune out. Sure. And so really, you know, finding ways to present content in ways that they can um, relate to it, they can play with it, they can kind of leverage it is is kind of what we've had to do with a lot of our materials. Absolutely. I mean, kind of big shifts in, in how we have to teach to engage that uh, generation. Just quick kind of anecdote that I was reading this article where Google Docs is the new way to share notes in class. It's like you used to hand them around. Now you can just, you get all your buddies on one Google Doc and you just type in the document to share notes with your friends. Uh, but to go back to, to the kind of shareable moments, I think is a really cool idea in terms of it. it's authentic. I mean, the person, whether it's social bragging or whatever, the person is excited to share that moment with that particular brand, whether it's beer, the Diamondbacks. I mean, it doesn't matter. And so the, the teams can uh, encourage this by developing kind of Instagrammable areas of their venues. You've got a mural with the Diamondbacks. You've got a baseball with the Diamondbacks logo right. inside the stadium, outside the stadium to encourage that type of, you know, essentially free marketing. And that I think is where the NBA is really just blowing the other leagues away because they've created superstars. And, you know, we've, we've talked in the past on the show about the issues with superstars in the NBA as it pertains to contracts, but it's undeniable that the super, that the superstar effect in the NBA has given people, not just Gen Z, but people the ability to share these moments. You know, we talk about, like, if you go to a Phoenix Suns game, there's there are murals of Steve Nash on the wall. Mm-hmm. Steve, most, most Gen Z Suns fans don't remember watching Steve Nash play, mm-hmm. you know? And if they do, it was kind of in the twilight of his career. They don't remember prime Steve Nash, right? But a picture in front of that Steve Nash mural, having that kind of interaction with the product that's being put on the court, I mean, it's second to none in the NBA. Compare that with the NFL. You go to a Cardinals game, and it's basically the concourses are just a means to get to your seat so you can watch the game. Right. So, I mean, when we're talking about the in-venue experience, the NBA has made it more than just what's on the court. Now, it helps that what's on the court is endlessly shareable. You know, watching Giannis, you know, take three steps from the three-point line and dunk, which... It's called a travel. 
Okay, <laughs> take two steps from the three-point line and dunk. But I, I think that's a fascinating point because I, I do distinctly remember that. Like, I've been... State Farm Stadium is many, many years younger than America West Arena or now whatever the hell it's called. Talking US Stick. Airways, Talking Stick, Arena, Resort, <laughs> Casino. Um, it It has dramatically cooler interior design but the the stadium the facility itself is way worse right they don't have nearly the comfortable seats they don't mm-hmm. have the, like it's just an older facility but they were able to create these things that make it much more shareable sure. as you've put it and even cities i mean not to get too far away but you know using it as a marketing tool of your city so like i went to nashville recently they have the, all these different murals that people take photos in front of and share with all their friends you know you think of like the love statue in Philadelphia and those kind of things or insignia, whatever you want to call it, um, that creates these shareable moments and free marketing for those cities, those teams. Um, and again, whether it's social bragging or, or whatever, uh, it's still seemingly coming from an authentic place there that you consumer is excited to share that experience. So one concept that I, I'm kind of interested in by this discussion is the what I'm going to call the skew of the share. And what I see on Twitter is that people are very willing to negatively talk if they have a bad experience. So, like, got a cold burrito, thanks, at Chipotle tweets. Hmm? Lost my bag at U.S. Airlines or whatever it is. Does that say – I'm not on Instagram. Does that same thing happen on Instagram? So if you had a bad – right? Isn't it interesting? Like, if you had a bad beer, you wouldn't say, like, thanks, stone, tangerine, nonsense, you're drinking beer. Right? Like, isn't that kind of weird that we don't see the same negative – uh, on the the photo shares, yeah, it's, Instagram is um, is inherently positive and sort of the best parts of your life, like a highlight reel of your life for the most part. And you don't get that on Twitter. I mean, yeah, there's people who positively promote a lot of things, but you get more of the negative complaints. I mean, if you're let's just say at a Suns game and you had a bad experience, you're not going to take an Instagram photo and say thanks, Suns. Right? <laughs> well, not only that, but like you, you think about like you know you you take all this time to put your filter on, like had a terrible experience, but took this great picture. No, that doesn't happen on Instagram. <laughs> Twitter, you know, I I can throw out a tweet about oh, lost my bag at Delta, more yeah. likely. Yeah. Uh, you know, lost my bag at Delta Airlines. Send. Done. I mean, it takes that, it takes me like five seconds. Isn't that kind of interesting? The skew of the it different is. medias. Twitter is a just a wild, wild west, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. It's personally my favorite social media. I guess if we're using Chris Lee's definition, it's my favorite media. But uh, <laughs> I think it's also the way they're designed. Twitter is just inherently faster, real time, where Instagram doesn't have quite the same sort of conversational nature. You're posting a photo, then you get a couple comments versus kind of one on one back and forth. Well, also on Twitter, you can post a lot better one liners. You know, one liners don't work in photo form, but on Twitter, man, just a quick witty one liner. I will I say Dan- Instagram- Daniel W. McIntosh throws a couple one liners on Twitter from time to time. I'm, I've been, I dabble. I will say that Instagram obviously now is, you know, Instagram stories. And so you can document all these different moments. So in that case, you might see some negative responses. But again, it goes to show like you're your own media company. I mean, how many people are taking, you know, five to 10 Instagram stories a, you know, a, a day, which reminds me, I was at a concert and this gentleman in front of me, I, this is not a joke recorded at least 30 minutes of the concert, probably more with his phone up above his head. Uh, a taller gentleman, so you can see anything, holding the phone up, recording a good 30 minutes. I do find that weird. I don't know, like, when when do you watch that again? Or or who do you watch it with? Like, hey, let's sit around around, you know, Thanksgiving and watch this 30 minutes of but it's, poor it, it gets concert really, So footage. Black Mirror did a really interesting social on this, where they basically show somebody, you know, something terrible is happening. She's being murdered or something. 
and the public's response is to take out their phones and record it yeah. instead of it actively engage yeah. with the White bear. experience. Yeah. White Bear. Yeah. Black, Black Mirror has a lot of really great episodes that I never want to watch again. That's true. Sort of bystander effect of mm-hmm. sorts. Well, Black Mirror, definitely a good recommendation. And definitely not something we uh, have the time to talk about on this show. However, with that in mind, we are running out of time. And since we're talking about Gen Z and new methods of consumption, I want to ask you two, when we're talking about, you know, what you do for fun, we're going to look at Netflix. Do you two both have Netflix? Yes, I just watched something on Netflix. All right. Uh, no. You don't have Netflix. No. Do you have Hulu? No. I have DirecTV now. Every, every, like, I would say, like, I end up signing up again for, like, a month or two, and then I... You do the free trial? I cancel. No, I don't do that. But I just don't watch. Professor McIntosh, what's your favorite <laughs> show to watch on Netflix? We're just going to ignore this guy well, over here. Uh, favorite is Last Chance You. I absolutely love Last Chance You. I thought you were going to say what was the most recent thing, which was the... I think it was called The Legend of Cocaine Island. Fantastic. That sounds awesome. It was fantastic. It was about a, a, a real estate guy in Florida who is told about a, a washed up bag of cocaine on, I think, a Costa Rican or Puerto Rican uh, island, and he ends up going to jail. Fantastic. 100% go watch it. On Netflix, I'd say the only show that I can think of that I've watched more than probably two episodes is Black Mirror. I'm not a big Netflix person, I'm not a big TV show person. Um, like I'll, I'll watch like uh, The Prophet and Bar Rescue are cool shows, but those aren't. What on do you Netflix. do in your spare time? <laughs> like I, was I saying, read Chipotle. I, was I read eat, and I <laughs> read and eat saltine crackers. Probably go to Chipotle. Tweet. Drink water. <laughs> concerts and concerts. It's Country music only though. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think for me, I'm actually going to come out and say it. I watch the Great British Baking Show like No Tomorrow on Netflix. What? I th- it's an awesomely bingeable show, and it's so it's. It's very positive, which I think is part of what makes it so appealing. Is like I go from watching like Black Mirror. It's like you know this dark, foreboding. You and know, you don't like the West Wing. I don't. I, I, I find it so uplifting. I, I could go into so many reasons why I don't like the West Wing, <laughs> but we don't have time for those right now. But no, the Great British Baking Show. It's positive and it's it's wholesome and it's nice and the music is good and the people are friendly and it's good and it makes me think that maybe just maybe the world is such such a negative place. Does it make you hungry? Yes. Yeah. That's why I don't watch them. I don't, I don't, I'm like, I'm like, I don't need to eat 14 cookies or whatever. Mm -hmm. There you go. All right. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Sports Business Commute here on the program. The Sports Business Commute is hosted by myself, Michael Minkus, Chris Lee, and Daniel McIntosh. The last two, they're professors at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.